When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The president's announcement on steel tariffs renews the conversation about America's place in the world. Today, we're discussing America's economic role in the world, along with the Oscars and Fox News. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone and welcome to another episode of Pantsy Politics. Thank you so much for all of the birthday wishes. As you might be able to hear, I spent my birthday with some antibiotics <laughs> and Sarah and I discussed before we got on that our children seem to be conspiring against us this week, but we are going to hang in there today and talk about the tariffs that the president announced last week. We also are really excited for the entire month of March. Instead of doing compliment the other side, we are going to do the Women's History Month Minute, and each of us will take turns talking about women who have um, been inspiring to us and contributed to our country. So we'll be talking about some historic figures in this process. We would also love to hear from you about women in your communities. So if there is a woman out there who you think has a story that isn't being told enough, just send us an email and we would love to talk about her on the show. So Beth, you were sick. You didn't get to watch the Oscars. 
I saw a little bit of the first hour or so while I was kind of, I think writhing is the right verb (laughs) for what was happening. Mm. So I caught like a few dresses. I caught the um, animated feature film. I saw Kobe Bryant accept his award. So I saw I saw bits and pieces. I mean, I think that the Oscars was such a reflection of where we are as a country with this Me Too movement. I think that industry might be a little bit further along, but it's just, it's not all going to happen overnight. We are all trying. We all understand this is different than before, and we're trying to make sure it's different. I mean, it was a very focused effort to make the Me Too Time's Up movement a part of the ceremony. So Ashley Judd, Selma Hayek, and um, Annabella Sciorra, all who accused um, Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault or sexual harassment publicly, Ashley Judd being the first public name to really to start the domino effect, came out, spoke very eloquently about the, the time, the time's up and how we're trying to move forward and how we want this to be more than just conversation. Um, they switched out some of the, usually the best actor presents the best actress. The best actor winner from the year before presents the best actress and vice versa. Uh, last year's best actor was Casey Affleck, who's been accused of sexual harassment. So he did himself a favor and pulled out. So they had a, women presenting all these awards. There's a lot of female presenters, um, even though the show was still hosted by a man, Jimmy Kimmel. That the the acceptance speeches were very powerful. Frances McDormand won Best Actress for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. She was amazing. I didn't actually want her to win because um, I wanted Saoirse Ronan to win. But she was really amazing. She went on and on about um, – she had this great moment where she had every woman that was nominated stand – And she talked about, like, look around. Let's just not talk about supporting women. These women have projects right now they want to work on that they need money for. So look around. Get their numbers. We can come to your office or you can come to ours. But let's talk. Let's make these projects happen, which I thought was really awesome. And then at the end, she said, and I just went in with two words, inclusion writer. And I think everybody was, like, immediately to Google what's an inclusion writer, which it's, it's basically a writer in your contract that says you want a certain amount of diversity among the crew. And the production staff and the higher-ups, which is really awesome. I hope that not just women and people of color have those writers in their contracts. It would be really great if um, males and white males in particular would put those in their right in their contracts. But so there was really powerful um, moments that felt so indicative of the change. And not just with regards to women, you know, with Oscar So White, there was uh, Jordan Peele became the first black uh, man to win. Best screenwriter for Get Out, which is phenomenal for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph had the most amazing moment. I went to see them in everything together. I love Tiffany Haddish. She showed up in her um, Alexander McQueen dress that she talked about in her S- – like she wore in her SNL open and talked about how she was going to wear it to everything. She wore it to the Oscars, which I just love so much. So she was just a joy as usual. But, I mean, at the same time, everything doesn't change overnight. There were a lot of first-time female nominees or sole female nominees, none of which won. Greta Gerwig was nominated for director. She did not win. Guillermo del Toro won, who's very deserving and a very talented director. And then they had the first female cinematographer who didn't win. But the guy who did win had been nominated like 14 times, never won. So, like, I'm not mad at him. But then the one I am a little mad at is Gary Oldman won. And Gary Oldman has been accused— pretty believably by an ex-wife of domestic abuse. So to like have him up there and then Colby Bryant won, 
which is weird to begin with, and also because he was accused of rape. Like, I just... It was fits and starts. Like I said, I think it was just like indicative of where we are. It's not all going to change overnight, but we do seem more dedicated to the change than ever before. You know what I think is so smart about Francis McDermott? The more specific we get about mm-hmm. what is needed in these movements, the less scary they seem, really. When you start to put that kind of granularity around it, I think yeah. more people can say, oh, well, that makes sense. That seems mm-hmm. like a good idea. That's less threatening than some kind of amorphous. Let's change everything. Yeah. I, I think that's really great and very powerful. And it's not that I'm worried about scaring everyone, but I am thinking more lately about how we can actually get things done. So I love that she gave really concrete ways mm-hmm. to get things done fund those projects have that writer in your contract that's awesome yeah i thought it was really great and emma stone had this really great sort of natalie portman-esque moment when she was announcing the nominees and she said these four men and greta gerwig <laughs> did amazing jobs directing blah, blah blah that was pretty awesome too um so i thought it was a overall side note the set was ridiculous. It was so beautiful and sparkly, and it kept changing colors. And every time you thought it was going to—it was like one thing, they changed it again. So I don't know who was in charge of the set at the Oscars, but give them some credit. Because I think there was something about, like, aesthetically it being so fancy and pleasing in the midst of, like, sort of a lot of heavy talk and heavy moments that was pretty nice. Also, not everybody wore black, so it made the dresses a little more fun. And there was a lot—there's a lot more— um, difference among the men in their tuxes like they're it's like they're getting way more um unique and different textures and different colors which i'm here for and i totally support that they had a really fun moment where they went across the street and surprised an audience of um moviegoers who were watching a wrinkle in time and they also did a lot of really good montages i love a good montage Love a good montage. And there were so many montages. So that was pretty fun. Um, I have not seen The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture, but I definitely plan to. Um, And so, I mean, I thought it was overall not as exciting. They didn't announce the wrong winner for Best Picture like they did last year, which was so crazy. But overall, that was a good ceremony. I thought they did. They handled the Me Too moment. Um, Well, it was not perfect, but we're not all looking for perfection here. We're just looking for progress. We have both been listening to, to kind of stick with pop culture for a second, we've both been listening to Slow Burn, Slate's podcast about Watergate. And if you haven't listened to it, it is worth your while. It's only, what is it, nine episodes? Mm -hmm. And they're very digestible. It is so timely. Yes. And I think that it's... It, it It's helpful to me, honestly. It helps me better understand different attitudes from different groups of people about mm-hmm. what's going on in our country right now based on how old they were during the Nixon years. Here's the thing, too. It made me feel a lot like I think there were more centrists, more moderates, more independents during that time period. But it still makes me feel better that it was like so, especially the way his support broke down was so harshly partisan. It just makes me feel better in a weird way. Why does it make – can you say more about that? Because it makes me feel – I feel like often in this – in our current time, you get – I get trapped in this like, this is the worst it's ever been. We don't know mm-hmm. what this means. Like, the polarization in the United States right now is terrible. It's going to destroy everything. And then you look back and you're like, no, we were – we've always been partisan. It's, it's sort of our shtick. And the fact that that – 
I, I guess I just had not internalized the timeline enough that he won re-election. He brutalized George McGovern post-Watergate. Like, Watergate had happened. Yeah. And he still won by so much now. And I also had not—I knew the story of Ed Muskie and him crying. Like, I knew that that ended his political war, but I had not put him right in the timeline. I didn't know that that—they went after him because they did not want him as their opponent, which I thought was so fascinating. I mean, that man—that Nixon, woo! He was the king of dirty tricks. I tell you what, he invented the game. Invented the game. So I thought less about the partisanship listening to it and more about how much we like to hang on to a compelling personality. Mm. You know, once we've decided that we like someone or that he's our person, oh, it's hard to so let go He's so not compelling. Of. I don't get that. Nixon is the grossest. I didn't get it either, but I also don't get the Trump. Obs- I mean, there are a lot yeah, of compelling personalities that I don't personally find compelling. But, but you know, that you can see where people sit, decide this is my guy and then they hang on and and how that kind of rocks back and forth. I mean, I would argue not that they are the same or even close, but, you know, President Obama was a really compelling personality. Right. And he never had a scandal. But I can imagine that if he had one, people would have really hung in with him because mm-hmm. he's such a compelling personality. Mm. Um, same thing with Bill Clinton. You know, we're all having this discussion about why was Bill Clinton able to weather the Lewinsky scandal? I would argue that it's because he's a really compelling guy. And once we kind of cast our lot with someone, it's really hard for us to to say, oh, maybe I was wrong or maybe something has changed and I need to change with it. It also made me feel better because there were so many sort of false starts. They talk um, in detail about a, a Senate investigation that from the banking committee they talk a lot about the way that journalists covered it um, and the fact that like it just it, it didn't seem to catch on like nobody cared and all these people dedicating themselves to this investigation who really felt like there had been something illegal nefarious immoral that happened and it just you know because things get cleaned up so much in historical perspective, I think often it's easy to just sort of condense the storyline, condense the timeline um, and make it seem simpler. But there were so many fits and starts with the Watergate investigation. And that also made me feel better that it wasn't so like, you know, black and white. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's definitely a study in how democracy works and a reminder of how powerful the presidency is. And how even the most diligent investigative efforts take a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so easy because we're we've always lived post Watergate in our generation to realize. And I think because it's been portrayed in pop culture, and because it's been sort of just become the water we live in, that it's so easy to forget. Like. No, they didn't. My favorite part about the whole slow barn is like he talks off and on like they didn't know how it was going to end. Like they didn't know that everybody sort of known what that knew at the time, I think, to a certain extent that like what what Nixon was doing was bananas. But nobody had like the total picture. And I, I do think that so often with regards to Trump and the Russia investigation, I always find myself thinking like I I'm only seeing such a small part of this. What more is there? Like, and I I can feel it sort of intuitively that there's this sort of 
entire universe of things I don't understand, don't know, nobody knows about yet. But it's just so hard to sort of orient yourself in that way. And what's so interesting to me about the the parallel to Watergate is that without Watergate, perhaps I wouldn't believe that it's possible that I'm only seeing a small part of what's happening with the administration. The idea that Watergate said to America, conspiracies are possible. You know, it's the first time. Oh, that really part that was so con- hard. So hard. It's re- it was really hard to get through. And I think mm-hmm. it's hard to think about now to kind of check yourself where am I running away from reality <laughs> and where am I running toward it? And I, that's a question that I've been thinking about so much, especially we were talking about how on Patreon, I'm starting to feel a little like Glenn Beck. Like I feel like pretty <laughs> soon I'm going to be on Patreon with a chalkboard, just pointing at things and drawing crazy lines. Yeah. If you guys are not on Patreon, it's a really studying contrast because Beth is deep diving into the Mueller investigation and I am posting home improvement project pictures. <laughs> I know right after we're I covering posted, all the bases. I posted a 15-minute podcast on Ukrainian history, a first in my series on the Ukraine on Ukrainian history. I have to stop saying the Ukraine. It's see these things from your childhood just get stuck, right? But um, I posted that, and then Sarah immediately follows with, "Which um, flooring do you like?" And guess which one was a more popular. <laughs> Y'all really helped me avoid a mistake. The patrons really helped me avoid a flooring mistake. It's, this is important. So here is my t- my toughest takeaway from the slow burn. This is really hard for me. Well, the, the first thing I wanted to say, too, is I think it, the what's so hard to realize about that period in American history is that it was there was chaos. There were assassinations. Then you have Watergate. And in the midst of all that, you have this terrible awful war which was a conspiracy in and of itself like it's it's not hard to understand even though i do not feel that way why so many people of that generation just loathe the government they just loathe it yeah it isn't hard i mean i saw the post not long before starting to listen to slow burn and those those two things together, it really did give me new insight on how a whole group of people who are just a little bit older than you and I are mm-hmm. must have an entirely different perspective on what their government is capable of, what the role of the media is. It, 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 I think it all helps remind us, you know, you and I talk a lot about how in the scheme of things, America is a baby country. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe the analogy is like, shoo, we had really awkward teenage years and maybe we're still going through that. Well, here was my difficult takeaway. So let me say this. I'm a very proud Southerner. I love being a Southerner. I am a ninth generation Kentuckian. Like, I'm very proud of that. My family has been in the South. We didn't even roll through the North. We came right in through Virginia and North Carolina. Like, I really, really love this place. But I was listening to this podcast, and at every turn— Nixon's strategy is, well, let's just go get the Southern Democrats. They'll listen to us. They'll believe us. They'll support Nixon at all costs. We can play to their racism. Like, let's just go to the Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats. And they had, like, interviews with these guys in Arkansas that were like, we just, we don't really care about Watergate. Just get out of the way and let him do his job. And I'm just like, I just had this terrible moment where I'm like, I love this place. When are we ever going to be on the right side of history? When do I never have to look back? 
At the history of the United States and see the South on the wrong side of the Civil War and on the wrong side of slavery and the wrong side of segregation and the wrong side of Watergate and the wrong side of freaking Donald Trump. Like, it's just, it makes me so sad. And I know so much of it is self-perpetuating because you support these terrible policies that then, you know, keep people uneducated and ignorant. And it's, I know, but I think that, I worry sometimes that there's not something much deeper going on in our region. And I don't know how to fix it, and I don't even know what causes it, but just listening to, like, one more time where I have to listen to Southern voices from history justifying terrible, awful things is really, really breaking my heart. It's a good point. And something that I think about a lot is that those positions are so at odds with how people treat each other in their communities in the South. (sighs) It's like living in two different universes at the same time, because you'll hear people in those voices say things about political policy that are shocking and hurtful, and then you'll see them go out of their way to take care of the people around them in in ways that I think would be so surprising in other parts of the country, you know, would seem extreme in other parts of the country. I don't think I'm saying something unfair by saying that. Um, The way that we kind of welcome each other. I mean, there are most parts of Kentucky, you must wave. Like, it doesn't (laughs) matter if you know the person or not. It's mandatory waving. There's just a real um, dissonance between, Mm -hmm. I think, the values that people have for for themselves and their communities and the people they know versus the world that's out there. Well, and I still see so much of the insularness of the Scot-Irish ancestry, which is predominant in the South, which um, the Scot-Irish group immigrated, and they hated everybody. They hated Scots. They hated Irish. They definitely hated the British. And so they came, and they were very insular, and they took care of their own, and often they intermarried with Cherokees, which were also distrustful of outsiders. And... So I think that 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 insular distrust of anything that's not us, but like the idea that the South or these communities understand it all and understand exactly what's needed and what's best. And it, there's just this closed mindedness that is exhausting. And like I said, it just makes me sad. Like, I don't want my region of the country to be on the wrong side of everything every dang time. And to be clear, you know, that's not on the wrong side of Republican or Democrat. That's on the wrong side of just history, history and values and the kinds of principles that are going to go forward. Much like Nixon had a strategy of going after Southern Democrats, there is a media outlet that has a strategy of playing to people's worst instincts. We wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between the president and Fox News which I will lump into the ethical nightmare that we began discussing in our last podcast, because it is really difficult for me to understand why Kellyanne Conway encouraging people to buy Ivanka's shoes was an ethical problem, but the president tweeting about Fox News on the regular is not. This, for me, was all tied together really nicely in a quote that I recently saw from Michael Hayden. And he said, there is an eerie and uncomfortable echo between some of the things the president tweets, the different point of emphasis on Fox News, the thematic stories in the alt-right media and Russian bots. I don't have to create collusion here, 
each for their own purposes, are well served by creating deeper divisions within American society. society. The president to play his to his base, Fox News for ratings, the alt-right because they have a conspiratorial view of everything, and the Russians to mess with our heads. And that, to me, is really terrifying because I think that's a very difficult thing to combat, to say everyone's doing it for their own reasons. Um. And I think he's right. I think I do see that thread running through everything. And as much as I'd like to just say, like, a Watergate, that there's some, you know, dirty maniac pushing all the buttons like Richard Nixon, that's not what we have here. We have these very complex stakeholders with for different reasons that this all plays to. And it's like they can feed off each other. That's what's so scary about it. It is, I think, the breaking point between the Watergate parallels and today, because with Watergate, you very clearly understood that Richard Nixon was all about preserving his own power. And that Mm -hmm. was the objective involved with everything. And I think that's why some people who are supporters of the president find it so frustrating because they don't see that with him the same way. And it doesn't have to be the same way to still be a problem. Now, I think the president is very much about self-preservation. I think it looks a lot different than Richard Nixon, but I I do think he has that self-preservation streak. But I don't think that the Russians care about him at all. I think the Russians care about just confusion and chaos and distrust in our institutions, weakening our government. And part of what I've been talking about on and we'll continue to be talking about on Patreon, is that this is not new for the Russians. They were doing this kind of stuff in Ukraine in the early 2000s. They have been honing their skills on how do you weaken governments. So it is really confusing. And to have a supposed news outlet jumping into the middle of all of that and exploiting it, I just don't understand the direction. What are they trying to achieve over there? Because there is a part of me that thinks, well, there's two things. There's a part of me that thinks, does Rupert Murdoch really want all this discord? Does he, I don't, I think he cares primarily about making money, but I do not think that is the only thing he cares about. Plus now you have this younger generation that does seem to have different priorities. So I, I don't know. I don't know. It cannibalizes itself as a business model, too. So Chris Wallace, I think, is an excellent journalist. You can take issue with him on lots of different points, as you can with anybody. But that's a smart guy trying to do good work for the most part. Anytime he does a somewhat aggressive interview with someone from the Trump administration, he gets killed on social media over it. So you're going to have this audience if you keep upping the ante. If you keep upping the Annie, I think I was confusing Annie with Hannity in my mind. You can understand (laughs) why. But if you keep escalating, your audience is going to escalate probably at an even faster rate. And before you know it, Fox News is Infowars. Well, and I think that one of the best points I heard during the 2016 election was Ezra Klein said, look, Mitch McConnell does this because it serves his electoral purposes. He thinks that everybody knows He's sort of half bluffing, right? He's playing to these base emotions, with, like particularly going back to, like, let's say, George W. Bush, knowing that they're not going to overturn Roe v. Wade, knowing that Hillary Clinton is not Satan's second coming. But you do that enough, and people say, 
Why isn't the why aren't you doing all these things you told us are the end of the world? Why aren't you fixing them? And you get something like the Tea Party or you get the populist movement that brought us Donald Trump. Because you can only stoke people's emotions for so long without a big political, legislative, governmental answer that makes them feel like you're doing something. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Mitch McConnell has always relied on the guardrails. Yeah. And now the guardrails are being really, really tested because of it. So true. Well, so instead of complimenting the other side, which we normally take a second to do every month, we are going to have a focus on Women's History Month. And Sarah, you're going to start us off today, right? I'm so excited, y'all. I'm a Women's History Month fanatic. When I was in eighth grade, my school did not do an appropriate um, level of Women's History Month education that I, my eighth grade, uh, my eighth grade self felt was appropriate anyway. And so I did it myself. So I made all kinds of themed posters and hung them in the hallways. I think there might have been an event. I don't remember, but I remember those posters. I wish I had pictures or maybe just the posters themselves. So I decided to kick it off with Jeanette Rankin. Do you know who Jeanette Rankin is, Beth? I don't. I'm excited to learn. Well, this is what's crazy, right? So Jeanette Rankin was the first woman elected to federal office, but she is really not lionized in women's history the way that other female politicians are. And it's kind of shocking, right? She was the first woman. So she grew up the eldest child of a a wealthy rancher, and school teacher, they encouraged her to go to school. I think she lived like a pretty nice life. They had seven kids, but they were really they, there was a lot of money. They had indoor plumbing and electricity, like the first in the in the area. So I think she had a really comfortable childhood. She graduated from the University of Montana. So I mean, in the early 1900s, to encourage her daughters to go to college was a big deal, especially in Montana. So then she kind of floundered for a little while. She finally settled on social work. And she moved to San Francisco and was really sort of struck by the tenements and the the plight of people in the cities at that time and got swept up in the the progressive movement. She went to school in New York and got a master's in social work. So she in 1910, she moved to Spokane, Washington for a social work job and then started pursuing another degree and got swept up with the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which was the precursor to the League of Women Voters, head by, headed by Cher- Carrie Chapman Catt played by Angelica Houston and Iron Child Angels, for anyone who's a fan. She was sort of um, a little bit of a intense character. So she started working for that organization. She worked for the Right to Vote in North Dakota um, and New York. Then eventually she moved back to Montana to lead the women's suffrage efforts there. So she really worked tirelessly all across the state organizing for women's suffrage, which came three years later in 1914 to Montana. It was, I think, the 10th state in the United States to give women the right to vote. Because at the time, the National American Women's Suffrage Association was pursuing a state-by-state strategy as opposed to constitutional amendment. And so once Montana procured the right to vote, she decided to run for Congress. So at the time in Montana, now it just has one congressional seat, but at the time it had two at-large congressional seats. So everybody voted twice, and the top two vote-getters would go on to Congress. So due in large part to her organizing for suffrage, she had really great connections all across the states. And there's lots of reports that she was just 
a very hard campaigner, that she went to every event, that she went to every meeting, that she went to, if there were people there, she showed up and she worked very, very hard. She was also really supported um, by with, through financial and party support by her brother, who was a Republican leader at the time. I read one historian who talked about like sort of any woman who had electoral success in the early 1900s was always very supported by the men in their family. I mean, I think that's still true, but even true now, even more true then. So... She first she had the Republican primary, um, which she won. Y'all, I'm not even making this up. <laughs> I could not believe this when I read it. Her main opponent in the primary, who was like a kind of an up and comer in the Republican Party, killed himself after losing to her. Discuss. <gasps> wow. And like the papers wrote it up like this dude killed himself because she beat him. What? Yeah. And it was just a primary. It wasn't even an election. Okay. So then she goes on to the the general election. She trailed the incumbent, John M. Evans, by about 76,000 seats, but she beat the next candidate by about 6,000 votes. So there she is. She's the first female elected to Congress. What's really interesting is at the time, sort of first generation, this first wave of feminism, this first, these suffragettes, they, they did what many historians describe as an essentialist belief system. So basically, they really thought that men and women inhabited different spheres, just were different to their core, different skill sets. And so, like, when she won and they would come interview her for the newspapers, there's, like, all these interviews where she would be, like, sewing, and they would talk about how she just hasn't given up the household arts and all this stuff. So they really, you know, it was, like, sort of Victorian era. They couldn't just abandon gender roles altogether. I just don't think that was going to work very well. So they basically argued that because women were experts in these fears, that their representation was needed to sort of protect those areas of policy and government. So she really advocated for public education and social welfare, and she ran as a progressive reformer because there was a lot of corruption um, with the copper mines in the state of Montana because they were so powerful. So she vowed to sort of fight against that corruption and for equal wages for equal work for women and to protect children. So that was this very sort of concentrated, yeah, women are different, yes, but that's why you need us, basically was the argument. She said at the time, might it not be, she says, that the men who have spent their lives thinking in terms of commercial profit find it hard to adjust themselves to thinking in terms of human needs? Might it not be that a great force that has always been thinking in terms of human needs, meaning women, and that always will think in terms of human needs has not been mobilized? So that was really the thinking of the day. And so there's all this very interesting reporting about when she comes to Congress and, like, she came in with a bouquet of flowers and they, like, thought, and there was this fascinating stuff about, like, they really weren't sure if it was sort of allowed constitutionally because it constitu- the Constitution in describing um, the House of Representatives used the pronoun he. And so they're like, I don't know. Can she even come? It says he. <laughs> Which was amazing. Uh, there was all this. She had to use the public restroom because clearly they didn't have females' restroom. Oh, this was the best part. They put her office across from a representative who was like a famous bachelor. Like they were trying to do like office location matchmaking. What? Okay. <laughs> what? No. Okay, y'all know. So she came to Congress in um, 1914 as the first female elected to Congress. She famously said um, that I am the first, but I will not be the last. She gets to Congress. In a very controversial time because Woodrow Wilson has now called a special Congress to debate 
World War One, entering World War One against Germany. And that's where I'm going to stop because what we're going to do with these Women's History Month minutes is we are going to share a little bit about the women's lives and then have a more expanded um, timeline and the rest of her life on Patreon. So if you want to hear the rest about Jeanette Rankin, who was I want to pick up on Patreon where she was a famous pacifist and this World War One vote. And she also pops up again in U.S. history at the World War II vote and talk about what happened with her term in Congress and the rest of her life. And so you can find out all the rest about Jeanette Rankin, first woman elected to federal office on Patreon. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion. 
in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our main segment today is going to focus on the steel tariffs. Sarah would like you to know that I tend to make the mistake of spelling steel like Christopher Steel instead of like the substance that is used in rail. You just said Christopher Steel is like everybody knows where that is. You are in deep with this smaller stuff. Okay, she means the steel dossier. And the first time she did it, I thought, that's funny. And I kind of smiled. But then she kept spelling it with an E. And I was like, oh, my God, she is so deep. She is so deep in with this smaller stuff, y'all. Well, you know what's so ridiculous about it? I spell tariffs correctly, which no one does, right? (laughs) Everyone puts two R's in it. I get tariffs right, and then I put steel. Anyway, the president, as you probably know very well by now, has decided to, well, he has pre-decided. Pre-decided. The administration hasn't released a policy. So I'm going to start calling. That's a new term I'm going to start using. Yes, I think it's appropriate. The president has pre-decided to place tariffs on steel and aluminum coming into the United States. Not to just keep promoting Patreon today, but we did a primer about trade a couple, I guess it's been a couple of years ago now, that is a really good place to just build a foundation of knowledge about importing and exporting what the trade deficit actually means. So it is there on Patreon at certain levels of support if you want to check it out. But essentially, the president has said, no big deal if this starts a trade war. Those are easy. We have such a trade deficit and we've been so manipulated by other countries that we'll we'll get this ship rightened in no time. So I like how flippant he's been about this. I always think, what's not that important? Trade. I was thinking about an approach to trade that would make sense because trade is hard. I mean, one thing I want to say about these tariffs, which I which I do think are a bad idea, but George W. Bush did this too. Mm. And the purpose under the Bush administration was to slow the decline of steel jobs. And for a while it worked until it didn't anymore. Because when you try to prop up something that's not a, a long-term sustainable proposition, you can only prop it up for so long, right? Well, and here's the thing. The Bush administration used a scalpel. This is like a sledgehammer. Like, he's not focusing on certain countries. He's just like, no, let's do it all across the board. Like, it's going to hurt Germany, not China. I'm wondering if it will actually come out that way. That's why I think it's a pre-decision, because it seems impossible to me that the ultimate policy would not have some countries accepted from it. But it also sort of makes sense to me with regards to him, because when you say... Like when you're trying to prop up something, well, that's his whole life. His whole life is being propped up, right? He likes to think of himself as purely market-driven and just competitive and a survivor in the marketplace. But that's not really true at all. He had a head start. He plays dirty. Like, he's always propping himself up. So he just thinks, if I play these same dirty tricks with the U.S. economy, maybe that'll work too. I just don't think anybody is very honest about trade policy, 
On the Republican side of the aisle, we like to talk about how the government shouldn't be involved in choosing winners and losers. To some extent, if you're being honest— Sounds so good. Sounds so reasonable. If you're being honest, to some extent, all trade policy does that. Mm -hmm. Because by imposing this tariff on steel and aluminum coming into the country, you are inviting other countries to impose tariffs on other goods and services. You're saying it's more important to me that our steel and aluminum manufacturers get a leg up than for businesses in the United States who purchase steel and aluminum or businesses in the United States that export products to get a leg up. So if Canada says, okay, tariffs on our steel coming into your country equal tariffs on the wine that you guys manufacture coming into ours – You've chosen a winner or loser, and I think it's important to be more honest about that. It's not that I don't think we should ever have a tariff on anything, because we do have to have a trade policy, but I've just been thinking a lot about how I don't know what a philosophical, consistently applicable principle underlying trade policy looks like, other than tying it to our foreign policy generally. So I'm glad you brought up Canada because there's been some reporting that he just thought this would be a good way to try to negotiate NAFTA. And I just want to say that I think Justin Trudeau might have one of the hardest jobs in the country right now. Do you feel like that? I mean, in the I world. Think it, I think it is very difficult to be Canada right now. I Absolutely. know, because he can't just be like, suck it, I'm walking. Like, Canada's way too intermingled with us. So he has to play reasonable Why Donald Trump goes around making proclamations and being completely unreasonable. I see you, Justin. I know how hard you're working. Also, just don't mind looking at you generally. Just putting that out there. It's so odd to be talking about Canada in an adversarial way. Yes. And it's hard to distinguish because trade policy is so connected to our partnerships in the world in general. And if you start thinking about how do we have a more peaceful world order, it would be nice for us to focus on economic partnerships, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that the trouble with this president is this this is a consistent message. So I think this idea about steel tariffs is dumb, but I don't I'm not outraged about it because this is exactly what he said he would do. There is mm-hmm. nothing surprising about it at all. And economic policy is just kind of a series of trade-offs. I wish that he would sit down with the American people and say, "I've made a decision to support steel and aluminum." probably going to hurt other industries, just like when we did NAFTA. On balance, it helped the economy overall. Did some people get hurt in that process? They absolutely did, because every economic policy goes that way. We, we do not have pure win, 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 right, with economic no, no, policy. No, 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 he only wins, Beth. I guess I'm tired of winning, but... <sighs> Well, but again, it goes back to his experience, and he is zero-sum because he deals in real estate, and you are only a winner. You are only coming out on top. He refuses to acknowledge that perhaps running the United States is a little more complex, and the stakeholders are maybe perhaps a little more diverse than running the Trump company. The other thing about this is it is very consistent with his view of foreign policy that Mm -hmm. he espoused in his campaign anyway. I mean, he really is kind of an American isolationist. And what's funny about that is that the people who are actually running his foreign policy, I, I don't see any isolationism in them. You know, Mattis McMaster 
we are very active in the world right now militarily. And I think the president likes that sense of strong American might throughout the world mm-hmm. in, in a more aggressive way. But I don't think he really believes in America as a global partner in any way. And I know you love pop culture, so I feel like this is an appropriate moment to bring up Black Panther. <laughs> I thought that the first of all, I just thought that movie was very special overall. But I thought the dilemma of Wakanda was such an interesting way to think about the United States in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Because it's they have so much to offer, but there's a, always a risk when putting yourself out there. And look, it's not like we figured that out. It's not like past presidents figured it out. Like we no, get it wrong. we've never gotten that balance no, right. We don't get it right. I did want to go back because I think there's a really interesting piece on Politico that I was going to link to in our midweek newsletter um, about Donald Trump's bubble presidency. And I think what's so fascinating about this idea that his foreign policy is isolationist is, again, it just reflects his personal life. They were just they they wrote in detail about how he just doesn't interact with the public. Like he doesn't go to the local pizza joint. He doesn't go mm-hmm. to the sort of meet and greet. It says Trump promised the night of his victory to govern on behalf of the forgotten men and women of our country. Yet as president, he rarely comes into contact with regular people, except in the structured setting of the White House or during tightly orchestrated events set up by staff, including a West Wing listening session last month when Stoneman Douglas families that featured some attendings who were critical of his proposals. His announcement last week of new tariffs, the timing of which surprised even some senior staffers, came in a table packed with industry executives rather than at a Rust Belt steel mail like he just is not interacting with people and i think that's why you see the fits and starts right like you see it seems like he's flip-flopping because what i feel like what happens is he came in there and he was the person that was going to stick to all these campaign promises and then he gets in the face of congress and he's like oh this is harder than i thought it was going to be or he'll see the public with regards to the the small areas he does come into the contact with the public and he'll be like this is terrible we got to fix this and then someone will say well that wasn't your campaign promise oh well no i don't want to do that like you can just see the the just discontent and sort of ignorance with regards to the job itself and how it is bumping up against his own personal ideas and the way he wants to live his life i mean if it wasn't also terrifying it'd be a fascinating personality study Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off.
there's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So I want to think about what what America's place in the world should be, because when I I guess the question that I have is whether we feel so safe that we are willing to cut off global partnerships along the lines of trade as well as foreign policy. I mean, no way. I don't think people cut off. They don't isolate themselves because they feel safe. They isolate themselves because they're terrified. So are are we terrified then? Is that the position? Because to listen to the president speak, it's like we are we're always operating from this position of literal greatness. And I I guess I just wonder if Russia continues to escalate with us and and we're doing nothing about that right now. Right our state department, there's a report today that says our state department has spent 0 dollars of its budget to deal with the election interference from Russia. So if Russia continues to escalate from us or with us, or we receive an attack from somewhere else, do we not want other countries to help us? Do we just, is, is the vision to take the world on alone? And the other question I have is why do so many Americans think we're getting screwed in the world? Why is this such an effective message for him? I have no idea. I definitely think that people feel scared And there is no sense that we would ever need someone else to come help us. I don't think people think that at all. I think they think we can protect ourselves if we just mind our own business and stay over here. 
we won't ever need help from outside of the world. They didn't see that. Like the the, the national narrative is, in World War One and Two, we were the ones who went out, especially in World War Two, and saved the day. Nobody helped us. We were helping other people. Vietnam was a mess because we tried to get in our in other people's business. And I think with 9-11, there was a sense of like, we want the world to stand with us for for the principle of it, but we don't need them. We'll take out these terrorists by ourselves. I don't really think there is a sense in the United States that we would ever need other people in the world. I honestly don't think there is. And I don't think there's enough sense. I think the only it's only sort of fear-based that if if we cede our leadership, it'll be taken over by China and Russia, and that's a threat to us. But I don't know. I don't think people feel like that. Even with the Cold War, I think there was fear but I'm not sure if it was if the if the narrative was ever other countries will help us beat the cold. I don't know. I don't I don't hear that. I don't feel that from people at all. Wow, I just I think you're right. I think we need to do some soul searching around that mm-hmm. because I also don't see any evidence that we're just getting screwed over in the world. I don't either. If anything, I I think the evidence is that we are even in our most difficult economic times, at least of our lifetimes, we are still doing really well. The standard of living here is very high. And I get that we don't live in statistics and averages and that there are people for whom that is not true. I completely understand that. But on the whole, this is a good place to be. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see evidence that we're getting fleeced all the time like the president says that we are. If, you know, as I said on the last podcast, I feel like if we're getting fleeced, it's by him profiting yeah. from his office, not by these other countries taking us for fools. Well, and I really don't understand the narrative that oh we're losing we're losing the trade wars and we're losing out all these trade agreements and we're paying for all these things and no one else was paying for them. Like, does anybody look at the United States budget and say, "Man, the real problem is problem here is our trade agreement." Like, really? Like, I don't look at that that way. I don't think anybody. I mean, I guess some people do, but I certainly don't see that as our. And I really think if you polled Americans, like they're unhappy with it because they feel like we have bigger problems here. But I don't really think they think that is the big problem. I think they just see it as distracting from stuff we really need to pay attention to. And you know, I think it's so at odds. My my feelings about trade are in some ways really at odds with how I want to live in my life because. I don't really need socks to cost 79 cents. Seriously. You know, I, I don't need the overwhelming amount of cheap stuff. Less products stuff. that we have here. But I also see the value in being open for business in the world and having our products flow into other countries as well. I believe in eating locally and and really rethinking the way that we've been doing a lot of things for the past couple of decades. But I want that to happen because we as consumers decide that we want that to happen and that we're willing to pay for it. Yeah. Not because we set these trade policies that really cut us off from everyone driving the price of everything way up. Because something else I thought, and I'll call back to our previous conversation, what I've been thinking about a lot as a progressive and as a liberal as I listen to the fallout from the Watergate era and the fallout from the 60s is like, do we just force things on people that they're not ready for? Do we just – is the is the pace of change way faster than we as human beings, as Americans, can keep up with? What's the answer to that? Um, and so – 
you know, I think that with trade, I think you see that I think so much of the fear surrounding trade and fear about our position in the the world is a reaction to the pace of change. And so there is a part of me that's like, yeah, if people if people want to start paying more for things, which I think they do. I, I shared a really interesting article in a, our newsletter a few weeks ago called The Death of Clothing, that it wasn't just that um, people started paying less for nicer clothes with the sort of increase in fast fashion, but now even fast fashion, is, people, don't, people just don't want all the stuff. They just don't want all the clothes, right? We all don't need 55 shirts. And so... That I think that was really interesting. So I think I, I don't know how to like let the pat, pace of cultural change move naturally, but I think that is something that we probably need to spend more time thinking about. Somewhat related, I have been considering how we don't really expect anything to have a downside. Mm-hmm. Part of the luxury of being an American is that we we just expect everything to go fine. And we really expect it to go according to our plans and our schedule. I think we're surprised by no discomfort. We went no no discomfort. discomfort. We're surprised when we're affected by weather. Right. That's that's really been kind of rocking our country over the last couple of years that weather is becoming so significant in our lives. Because we've spent the past few decades figuring out how to build temperature-controlled, comfortable, mm-hmm. increasingly smart homes. Our our vehicles, I mean, our cars are practically computers rolling down the road. You know, we can listen to anything that we want at any time, talk to whomever we like without taking our hands off the wheel. Like, our lives have become so controllable that I think that, I don't, you know, maybe speaking for myself, I think that I'm having to learn in a very kind of painful way that there's just a lot that we don't control mm-hmm. and that that's a new lesson. My therapist talks about it as the spell of solidity. This And it's really just a version of impermanence, right? But this idea that you think things are a way and life is always going to show you that that's not to be forever. Right. And I think trade is like that. So we we go out and we seize a new economic opportunity and we expect everything good that led up to the opportunity to remain the same, not realizing that any change is going to have lots of changes and some of those aren't going to be great and we're going to have to figure out a new way around those. That's why, again, I'm not outraged about what the president is doing here, because I do think all of this policy is involves trade-offs. I wonder if there isn't a more honest way to talk about it in a bigger picture conversation, though. I, I, I think that this is a mistake because it is so alienating to other countries at a time when we seem to be just bent on alienating other countries. And my view of the world is that there will be times, you know, this is the spell of solidity too, right? There will be time when America needs other people in the world. Well, and here I am to chime in as we close this segment out with the pragmatic reality is as much as Americans do not feel they need the rest of the world, they very much like being respected by the rest of the world. That was in part the downfall of the Bush administration. Like people do not like it when they feel like the world does not respect America's leadership. And that is most certainly the case right now. And it is only going to get worse. And I would um, argue that the Trump administration does not take that seriously um, at their peril. 
Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? So I'm I'm, I'm deep in, as we call it on Patreon, Fixer Upper Paducah edition. So tomorrow they're coming, and I am switching out some doors in my great room. They're going to put in windows, complete with, like, bricking the outside of my house. So that's a big deal. Then hopefully as soon as we close on our old home, we are going to um, begin renovations on the kitchen. Very excited about that. No major... I am taking out a, a wall of cabinets, but because I'm better utilizing another wall that had one of those, like, desks everybody put in their kitchen in the 90s. So I was picking out cabinetry, which was easy, countertops, which was easy, backsplash, which was easy, and then I got to the floor. I wanted hardwood, but it's way too expensive, and my husband really doesn't want hardwood, to. and he's probably right that hardwood in a kitchen is a bad call, um, especially with three kids. Do you have hardwood in your kitchen? No, I don't have tile. See, but I don't like tile. I think it's too hard and it's too cold. So I started looking at, like, some of the luxury vinyl planks. So I, at first I picked out some, like, plank that looked like hardwood. But Patreon said, no, Sarah, you may not use that. <laughs> and they're right. It didn't look right up next to my real hardwood. So then I ended up going back to the store and getting some new options. And I got this really cool vinyl that looks like um, like a pattern tile which is really hot right now. So I'm going to put it down. It can go over the top of my um, current vinyl. Saves me a lot of money. If I want to put in hardwood, when my kids are older, I can. But we're going to spend the money on the other areas of the kitchen and just put in this floor. I'm really excited about it. I'm super pumped about just moving forward on this project because I'm really tired of this kitchen. So how long will it be until you feel like you're finished renovating? I mean, they think it shouldn't take but like a week or two because they can put the floor on top. Switch out the cabinets, which will be in. You just have to wait for them. One, they have to place the cabinet before the quartz people will, like, cut. So then you just have to wait for them. And he said sometimes they can be as quick as a week. So fingers crossed. We're going to try to get it done while the boys and I are out of town for spring break. So, Are you doing other parts of the house, too, or just the kitchen? Um, right now, just the kitchen. The bathroom's been updating, but we're not super worried about that right now. I am doing playing around with some stuff in my bedroom, getting some furniture reupholstered, which I'm excited about. I found the most amazing fabric site, you guys, that sells remnants, but like up to 14 yards of remnants of upholstery fabric for crazy affordable prices. I will put the link in the show notes. Ooh, that's a helpful link. Yeah. What's on your mind outside politics? Well, I'm continuing my life renovation, I guess <laughs> you could say. I'm really starting to work hard on my coaching business. I have some uh, some of the most interesting clients. It's really fun to work with people and kind of discover what my role for them is. I'm helping a lot of, you know, most of the people are kind of professionals at the top of their businesses or fields who just want someone to be there. It's like that HR on call, exactly as you described it, to just talk through hard questions. I'm also offering some online classes. So I just did my boundaries class, which was a lot of fun. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to start a class on just basic leadership skills. So it's really good for anybody who is a new manager. This is really kind of the the love of my work. You know, I'm in my sweet spot when I'm talking about how do you lead a team and what does it mean to be someone's boss and how can you do that in a way that's really healthy and happy and productive for everyone involved. So that is where a lot of my time is being spent right now. Sounds awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. Thank you for bearing with me through my voice. And we will be back with you on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday and here on Pantsy Politics on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsy Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash Pantsy Politics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. 
Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.